It was the spring semester of my freshman year at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina, the spring of the year 2000, when I first remember encountering the claim and engaging the claim that God is happy. I grew up in the church. I was 19 years old. Maybe I heard that claim. I never reflected in an extended way on that claim that God is truly and deeply and richly happy and not sullen and disappointed and nervous and endlessly frustrated with human sin and the mess this world is in because of sin. At the time, I was not a reader. But there was a junior on our freshman hall living in an apartment at the end. And he lived on the freshman hall because he wanted to invest in some freshman guys. And so mid-year, he started a Bible study in First Peter. He announced, come spring term, that our group was going to read Desiring God and discuss. And I was not happy about it. First Peter, I can read First Peter in five minutes. Desiring God's a big book. That was not my style. I had my stack of Cliff's notes that got me through high school. But I wanted to be part of the group. And so I acquiesced. And in due course, my vision of God and of the Christian life was radically changed. And in particular, it was one chapter. There was one chapter I read over and over again. And in the last few weeks, I looked back at the markings, different markings in different colors over and over again. Chapter one, the happiness of God. I read on the first page, page 33 in my old it was a 1995 edition of Desiring God. Redemption, salvation, restoration are not God's ultimate goal. That blew me away. These are performed, these he performs for the sake of something greater. Namely, it's a Piper word, namely the enjoyment he has in glorifying himself. And then a few pages later, I read about the two lenses and the mosaic. Maybe readers of Desiring God remember these concrete images. And Lewis gave us such a great demonstration of the mosaic at the end of his session. Here's the quote. The infinite complexity of the divine mind is such that God has the capacity to look at the world through two lenses. When God looks at a painful or wicked event through his narrow lens, he sees the tragedy or sin for what it is in itself, and he's angered and grieved. But when God looks through his wide-angle lens, he sees the tragedy or the sin in relation to everything leading up to it and everything flowing out from it. 
This mosaic, in all its parts, good and evil, brings him delight. The whole book was life-changing to me. But far and away, it was chapter one on the happiness of God, on the pleasures of God, that was the great catalyst for me. And so in the months that followed, this is the summer of the year 2000, I took up the pleasures of God. And it deepened and expanded and solidified the glorious subterranean bedrock truths of God's infinite bliss and blessedness. And the good news that if God's that happy, there's a chance that I could be happy, really happy forever. Because the pleasures of God, as he's revealed them in his word, are the great foundation and certainty of our happiness in him. So thank you, John, for the sermons in 1987, for putting it into a book in 1991. And I want to start by thanking God and asking for God's help in this session. So Father in heaven, thank you indeed for putting it in John's head while reading a letter from Henry Skugel, 300 years old, to ask the question, what about God? Is it not also the case that the worth and excellency of God's soul is to be measured by the object of his love? And then Father in heaven, that question, that insight for Skugel, for John, is so small compared to the feast that opens up in your word when we look to see what are your pleasures. And so, Father, as we come now to ask in this last session about your pleasure, your happiness in the gospel, would you grant us your help? We want to know you. We want to know you through your pleasures. And we want to know your son in the gospel. And so grant us your grace in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we could address this topic of God's happiness in the gospel in a more general sense, or we could do a more particular sense. Gospel can be such an expansive word, is it not? We could stretch its meaning into its broadest senses and catalog some of God's many pleasures in the fullness and expanse of this reality we call the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus saves sinners. So much to celebrate here. John celebrated much of it last night. Like the heart of the Father, the good pleasure of the Father in giving his children the kingdom. Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There is so much we could say about his pleasures in the gospel. However, more specifically, at the very heart of the gospel is a pleasure conundrum. If Jesus saves sinners is a simple, general summary 
of the gospel, then the simple, straightforward answer to how he saves sinners, in the words of 1 Corinthians 15, 3, is Christ died for our sins. Jesus died. Did that give God pleasure? Did he delight in the death of his son? How can a God who does not delight in the death of the wicked, says Ezekiel, delight in the death of his own righteous son? So where should we go for guidance on a question like this? The pleasure of God in the death of his son. We can turn to the fifth gospel. Turn with me to the prophecy of Isaiah. The high point of his prophecy, end of chapter 52, Beginning of chapter 53, 52, 13 to 53, 12. It's the great passage about the suffering servant. I'm not going to make an argument that this is Jesus because it's so overwhelming what Isaiah's prophecy refers to. And Isaiah deals head on with our pleasure conundrum. There's one conundrum. How can God delight in sinners? Fix that with another conundrum. Delight in the death of his son. And seven centuries before the climactic events, we get this vision from Isaiah. Twice in the vision, we have the explicit mention of God's pleasures. So we're going here. We also have mention of the pleasures of two other parties in this text. We'll see that. But before we focus on the desires and delights in this solemn passage, let me note a couple items here about what's essentially the preamble of this passage in 52.13 to 53.1. Preamble and then 12, 2 to 12, the passage. Look at verse, look at 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So first, note the opening declaration of the servant's success and exaltation. Verse 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. You could translate that, shall succeed. Because this is the kind of wisdom that knows what to do and succeeds. My servant will succeed. 
He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So before we hear of the jarring humiliation and the marring and the piercing and the crushing, we first hear he will succeed. He's going to be high and lifted up. We know where this is going. Second note then on the preamble, given that declaration in verse 13, a banner of astonishment is unfurled in verse 14 that flies over the rest of the passage. So much astonishment, back and forth, one thing after another. Verse 14, as many as were astonished at you. Verse 15, kings shall shut their mouths in amazement. 53.1, who has believed what he's heard from us? Because it's so surprising, seemingly upside down. Verse 8, who considered? The whole vision tells of an astonishing, startling, almost unbelievable work that the arm of the Lord will perform. And this servant, who is God's own arm, all that is in God is God. God's own arm will have his appearance marred beyond human semblance. And perhaps what's most striking of all is not just that it will happen, but that it is God himself who does it. This is God's doing. It's his work. In other words, the astonishment comes from the story of the servant being an expression not of human wisdom, but of divine wisdom. This is the same God who confounds human wisdom by saying, the older will serve the younger. It's the same God who will say through Isaiah two chapters later, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts higher and ways higher than yours. And this is the same God who will one day inspire a commentary after the events that says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, the power of God. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God. It was his pleasure through the folly of what we, Paul and Isaiah, preach to save those who believe. So God not only does it this way, confounding human wisdom and expectation, but he takes pleasure in it. He delights to astound. Like Jesus prays in Matthew 11. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Literally, it was pleasing before you. God takes pleasure in doing it. So then, what is this enigma that Isaiah has announced in his preamble. What's so astonishing, so startling, so almost unbelievable 
Verses two to 12 unfold the astonishing story. From the servant's quiet birth and upbringing to his unimpressive appearance, to this puzzle of him being despised and rejected. And then why? Verses four to six. And his astounding conduct when treated unjustly. And that, shockingly, all the way to death. And then finally, climactically, verses 10 to 12, most astonishing of all, through death. God's greatest pleasures through and because of this unjust, horrific death of the righteous, undeserving servant. So let's unfold God's astonishing action in his arm of the servant through the lens of the pleasures of three parties in Isaiah 53. Our focus here is on the pleasures of God, and we will linger there longest on God's pleasures, but this vision also speaks to desires and delights beyond his and sheds light on God's pleasures in the death of his son. So number one, there are the pleasures of natural man. Verses two and three, the pleasures of natural man. This preamble with its announcement of astonishment and kings shutting their mouths, and this is unbelievable, we might expect some big splash of a start for the servant, like descending from heaven in glory. But then it all comes so unexpectedly. It all comes so quietly. This is the first astonishment. Verse two, four. There's astonishment here, four. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. So, no glorious descent, though there was a private angelic announcement to a small party of shepherds, but the servant came from the womb and the servant grew up as a boy and then as a man. He was not the kind to attract an Instagram following. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire, take pleasure. That's the anchor here for the pleasures of natural man. No beauty that we should desire him. Rather, given his quiet upbringing and his unimpressive looks, the story then takes another unexpected turn in verse three. He was despised and rejected by men. One thing to ignore such a person, but to despise such a person? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and is one from whom men hide their faces. One thing to ignore his face. Another thing to hide their faces from his. And we esteemed him not. So the first pleasures mentioned in the vision are the desires of natural man and they are not the same as God's. The pleasures of natural man would have put together a very different story for the servant. Were they not? Celebrated birth, celebrity childhood. He would be visible 
well-known, much-discussed son of a beloved monarch. Or maybe he would acquire his fame through athletic achievement. Or maybe great victories as a warrior. How about all three? And he'd be tall, strong, handsome. He would be both nobly born and accomplished in his own right. Thus are the pleasures of natural man. But this vision of the servant and his story as astonishing points to a critical truth about natural man that comes front and center with verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The essence of this going astray, this turning, what we call sin, is preferring other things to God. Which means that natural man, in his human wisdom, does not see the world aright. No matter how close it seems at points. And it leads to folly in the end. Such human wisdom leads not only to overlooking the quiet, humble beginnings of divine wisdom and eventually being surprised by it when it flowers, but also in time, it leads to the despising and rejecting of God's wisdom. Sin is an assault on God, however much it doesn't seem like that at first. It may pretend to simply ignore him, but at bottom, it is a despising and rejecting of him, and it will be made known in time. So first, we have the backdrop of the desires, the thin and fleeting pleasures of natural man in verses two to three. Second then, observe the pleasure of God in crushing his son. Now we go forward to verse 10. That's the culminating paragraph, verses 10 to 12. And there are the greatest astonishments of all in the culminating paragraph. Now, I don't like doing this, but twice the ESV has the phrase, the will of the Lord in verse 10. I don't think it's wrong but I suspect that the idea of willing in English, this I, in, in English, this idea of willing is lost on most of us today. Many of us hear willing as a sense of acquiescence. Like my freshman year, I, I don't wanna read Desiring God, but I'm, I'm willing. I like to be part of the groups. So I'm willing to suffer through it. But the Hebrew implies more. It is a desirous willing. It's a wanting willing. There's a fullness to this willing, not an acquiescence. It's the same root translated delight elsewhere. John read the verse last night. Isaiah 62, 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken 
and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land will be married. That's the same word in Isaiah 53.10. It was the delight of the Lord to crush him. So the King James Version reads, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So KJV's got pleased, that's good. But then they've got bruised, which is soft. And ESV's got crushed, which is good. But it's got will, which is soft. You, 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 I can feel the difficulty of the translators in this. This needs to be taught. This needs 45 minutes of explanation, the whole passage. It's hard to do translation. It's shocking to hear he delighted to crush him. So let's read verses 10 to 12 in the ESV, which I love, and then ask how this text might help us approach our pleasure conundrum. Verse 10. Yet it was the will, delight, of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will, delight, of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the, the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, remember our banner of astonishment over the passage. The banner keeps waving, verses four to nine. There's more astonishments in four to nine. We'll see them. But when you get to verse 10, it is in another register. God himself did this. And God himself was pleased to do it. He delighted to do it. He didn't do it by accident. He didn't acquiesce. He was pleased to do it. Which, whatever questions this raises for us today, whatever pleasure conundrums we need to ask about and try to answer, don't let this be lost on you. For Isaiah, this functions as great confidence that the servant's work worked. God was satisfied with it. He delighted in it. Our sins and iniquities and transgressions were against God. It matters very little what the servant did if it does not please and satisfy God. So God's pleasure in the death of his son might raise our pleasure conundrum. We'll get to it. But let it not be lost on us what great assurance his delight 
in the death of his son, provides for sinners. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't just save sinners. He delights to save us. He doesn't go through the motions at Calvary. He doesn't bite his lip. He doesn't hold us at arm's length. As Jesus says, John 16, 27, the Father himself loves you. God doesn't just accomplish the gospel through his son and apply it through his son, but it pleases him to do this. So the happy God is happy about his gospel. It's not a divine concession. It is a divine delight. Salvation in Christ is not based on a whim or an accident. God designed it, he did it, and he delights in it. And neither Satan nor sinful man can do anything about that. So regardless of what questions it raises, God's settled pleasure in his gospel gives us great confidence in the solidity of our salvation in Jesus Christ. So let's linger here for a minute. We could move on to the next party that is delighted in Isaiah 53, but let's linger here for a minute before addressing our pleasure conundrum with God's delight in the gospel. Three aspects of God's pleasure in the crushing to death of his son. And this crushing was a crushing to death. He poured out his soul to death. Number one, the pleasure of God in the gospel is the pleasure of God in substitution. Verse 10, his soul makes an offering for guilt. Verse 12, he bore the sins of many, which leads to the very heart of the passage in verses four to six. And remember, it all flows under this banner of astonishment. Why was such a servant a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Because his sorrows and griefs were not his own, but ours. Look at four to six. Surely he was born our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our griefs, our sorrows, our iniquities, our transgressions, our chastisement and punishment laid on him. There is no getting around this being substitution. It is unmistakably Levitical language. These are the categories of the sacrificial system. 
the animal, albeit imperfectly and temporarily, stands in by God's gracious provision as a substitute for the chastisement sinners deserve. And yet here, the substitute is manifestly human. The whole sacrificial system hinted at this. And it inevitably anticipated something like this. But the arm of the Lord has not yet been revealed until Isaiah dares to tread where Moses only pointed. And then it's not yet enacted for another seven centuries. So the pleasure of God in the gospel is the pleasure of God in substitution. Second, the pleasure of God in the gospel is the pleasure of God in justification. I'm so glad we rehearsed it last night. I'm so glad to see it in Isaiah 53. Verse 11, the righteous one, my servant shall make many to be accounted righteous. The servant does not only bear the griefs of others and carry their sorrows, but he literally will provide righteousness for the many. It's a translation of Alec Mateer. If anybody's used Alec Mateer, Scotsman, pastor, preacher, died in 2016. One of his great life's works was the book of Isaiah. I would commend the work of Alec Mateer to any who would want to linger over the glories of the suffering servant. He will provide righteousness for the many. Justification refers to God's declaration righteous over sinners and over the ungodly based on Christ alone, through faith alone, being joined to him by that faith. In other words, the servant Christ will provide righteousness for the many who are joined to him by faith. And note, this is an additional pleasure of God in the gospel. Substitution is one glorious pleasure. The servant, Jesus, not only bears their iniquities, but also provides righteousness. Now, what about this phrase, the many, in Isaiah 53? Did you pick on that as we read through? That catch your attention? Several times, the many, the many, the many. I think it's one of the most important questions in this text. 52.14, many were astonished. 53.12, he bore the sins of many. Verse 11, many to be accounted righteous. Verse 12, he will share his portion with the many. Literally, the many are his portion. That repetition of the phrase, the many, the many, leads to a third pleasure of God in the gospel. Number three, the pleasure of God in the gospel is the pleasure, is God's pleasure in definite atonement. It's his pleasure in definite atonement. You might call it particular redemption. The many 
who are astonished in 52.14 become the witnesses who then speak in verse 1, us, and verse 2, we. The many then is my people in verse 8. The many is his offspring in verse 10. It's these many who say in verses four to six, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed to death for our iniquities. He brought us, the many, peace. By his wounds, we are healed. The many then is the we in verse six that says, all we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is the many. The we that are talking in verse six are the many, the offspring, the people. All those whom God has moved from seeing the servant with the pleasures of natural man to see him with the pleasures of God. So, as Alec Mateer argued at length in the 2014 Crossway book, From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, the intended recipients and the actual beneficiaries of the servant's atoning death are one and the same group. That is, the servant's work is definite. It is particular. Which means that the servant can actually say, as Jesus does in John 19.30, it is finished. The servant doesn't leave his work undone. Nothing in Isaiah 53 is open-ended. And this finality, this completeness, this particularity, this definiteness is all part and parcel of the achievement of the servant at the cross that delights his father. One more here from Alec Mateer before we move on. Very important quote. You can track this with me. The we of these crucial verses were locked into a failure to grasp what the servant was all about. But our, iniqui our iniquities were laid by Yahweh on his servant. And this is what led to our seeing. Very important to get that order. The theological implications are profound. The atonement itself and not something outside the atonement is the cause for any conversion. The resources for conversion are found in the servant's death. They flow from it. Thus, it is the atonement that activates conversion, not vice versa. You did not supply your conversion to activate the atonement. Jesus' atonement 
activates your conversion. So the pleasure of God in the gospel is the pleasure of God in substitution, in justification, in definite atonement. But I know, still our problem remains. However layered and multidimensional the pleasures of God, why does God delight in the death of his son? Four reasons. And the fourth reason leads us to the third party who has pleasure in Isaiah 53. Why God delights in the death of his son. Number one, God delights in the magnitude of his son's achievement. And his death is an achievement. In fact, it's the single greatest achievement in the history of the world. The eternal son became man, lived sinlessly for more than three decades, and with silence and without violence, willfully submitted himself to unjust arrest and torture and death to rescue a chosen multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then rose again in triumph. We'll say more about that. Over sin and over death and over Satan. This is the singular achievement for which the world was made and set up. This is an achievement of which we have only begun to grasp its magnitude. Incomprehensible, enjoyable for all eternity. We will celebrate it forever. When God delights in the death of his son for sinners, he delights in his son achieving the single greatest feat in history. And boy, do the achievements of sons delight their father. Number two, God delights in the pleasure of the many rescued by his son. He delights in once natural men, now born again to delight in God. And nothing produces holy delight in his redeemed people like the achievement of his son at the cross. To be accounted righteous and apportioned to the son, what does that produce in the born again heart? Obligation, duty, boredom, joy, real pleasure, not thin and shallow like the pleasures of the world, but the kind of pleasures that endure forever. And the joy of the many here is not our getting the son's portion as much as it is our being the son's portion. He gets us. I wonder if you're asking, am I among the many? Right? I know this is a glorious text. What a wonderful prophecy. And that many part is constraining. Am I among the many? 
It might be nice if it was open-ended and I could just opt in. Here's the question for you. If you wonder, am I in the many? Do you see the servant and his work as wisdom or folly? Is this folly? Is it wisdom? Do you see him as nonsensical or glorious? Is this embarrassing? Or is it delightful? Does your soul have pleasure in him or despise him? At bottom, what do you do with Jesus? You're not gonna figure out around Jesus, am I part of the many? You only can go through him to be part of the many. And if you treasure him, if you see him as wisdom, you are not a natural person. Those whom God has been pleased to move from despising and rejecting Jesus to worshipful astonishment can count themselves among the many. Number three, God delights in the son's love for God and his glory. The son acts wisely, Isaiah says. He does the father's will. He does the father's delight. He lives, he dies to glorify his father. He does not take sin as preferring other things to God lightly. He takes it with utter seriousness, more seriousness than any other human by going to the cross to die for the sins of many. Pleasures of God, page 176. The depth of the son's suffering was the measure of his love for the father's glory. It was the father's righteous allegiance to his own name that made recompense for sin necessary. So when the son willfully, not by accident, willfully took the suffering of that recompense on himself, every footfall on the way to Calvary echoed through the universe with the message, the glory of God is of infinite value. The glory of God is of infinite value. Or we might say, Christ, God is most glorified in his son when he is most satisfied in his father. God is most glorified in his incarnate son when for the joy set before him, he endures suffering and shame at the cross for his father's sake and glory. Nothing magnifies the glory of God like the son of God embracing the cross for joy, enduring suffering and shame. Which leads to a fourth reason for the father's pleasure. And at the same time, our third and final party that delights in Isaiah 53, that's the servant himself. Number three, the pleasures of the son in being crushed. Verses 11 and 12. 
and we are on holy ground. This is critical. The pleasure of God in crushing his son is not apart from the pleasure of the son in being crushed. This is not cosmic child abuse. That the son was pleased to be crushed. That in the agony he endured for the joy set before him does not mean it was easy. This is not pleasure light. This is pleasure deep, deep enough to sustain and animate the soul against earth's greatest deterrence. Consider two aspects of his pleasure as we close. There's the source of pleasure in the distance, which you will enjoy. And there's the streaming back into the moment of agony and anguish that sustains him. So first, consider how he went, how he went willfully, not kicking and screaming, but voluntarily. That is, he tasted enough pleasure of what was coming in the moment to embrace the cross. So we stand in awe of verses seven to nine. Anyone been unjustly treated recently? Verses seven to nine. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered, astounded, that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Nobody knew what that meant for 700 years until Joseph of Arimathea gave him a tomb. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And this again, all under our banner of escalating astonishment. Verses four to six gave us the unexpected reason for his sorrow and his grief. And verses seven to nine give us the unexpected conduct of the servant in his mistreatment. He opened not his mouth. He could have called 10,000 angels. But in the garden, the holy hesitations of his fully human will gave way in glad submission to the divine will, which was also his as the God-man. Not what I will, but your will be done. And in doing so, he embraces the divine will, pleasure. So he offered himself voluntarily. He consented. He did not just acquiesce. He willed it. He embraced it. He owned it. He let himself be brutalized. It was his pleasure. Not a thin, shallow, immediate human pleasure, but a deep, divine, supernatural pleasure to be crushed for the glory of the Father and for his own joy. 
through saving sinners. Second, then consider the source of the joy that sustained him in the agony. Verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Is that where Hebrews got the joy set before him? Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, he shall be satisfied for the joy set before him. He endures the cross in the agony. He looked forward to the pleasure he would have and tasted enough in the moment to keep going, which requires resurrection. This is so important. This is absolutely critical for God's pleasure in the death of his son and the son's pleasure in being crushed and our pleasure in him. If there is no resurrection, there is no pleasure in God in the death of his son and no pleasure in the son in being crushed and no pleasure in the many in his being crushed. But the resurrection turns death upside down. And God's pleasure in the death of his son is always a pleasure that has resurrection in view. Verse 10, the Lord shall prolong his days. Pours out his soul to death and prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Not only is it God's delight that he be crushed, but God's delight will be in his hand to prosper the resurrection. God's pleasure in the death of his son is a pleasure in the prospering of his son after death. Through the achievement of the cross and by the resurrection, Jesus enjoys the reward of his achievement, the many as his portion. The groom gets his bride. And the one who had no form or majesty that we should look upon him becomes the majestic one upon whom the redeemed gaze as the one who died to bear their sins and be their greatest delight. Which brings us back to the first line, 52 verse 13. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. In the lifting up at the cross, he will be exalted. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth on the cross, will draw all people to myself. God's pleasure in the crushing of his son is the pleasure of God in the lifting up of his son. Just as God the Son delights in the glory of his Father, so God the Father delights in the glory of his Son. And just as nothing moves the human heart like the exaltation and glory of Christ, so nothing moves the divine heart like the exaltation and glory of his incarnate, perfect, crucified, risen, reigning son. Let's pray together. So Father in heaven,
we are indeed astonished at your ways, your thoughts that are not just a little bit higher than ours, but as high as the heavens are above the earth. So high and astonishing is your wisdom, your ways. And in your book of astonishments, you put at the middle the greatest astonishments of all. And so Father in heaven, we come as the many and as worshipers. We want to worship this Christ. We want to see him more. We want to know you through him and know him through his pleasures and you through your pleasures and you through your pleasures in him. So we gladly submit ourselves to Jesus willfully, with delight. We take pleasure in being among his many. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.